Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. We often describe it as January 6th, but the effort to install him illegally as president when he didn't win the election was a vast conspiracy that involved hundreds and hundreds of Republican officials and elected officials and activists across the country, um, including Ronna Romney McDaniel, who has openly said that she participated in the fake elector scheme, um, as Mark, we know that Mark Meadows is potentially going to be indicted. And so the way to think about this is that the attack on the Congress was a small piece of a much bigger conspiracy that involved hundreds and hundreds of leading Republican officials in, by the way, in the battleground states. Hello and welcome to The Aaron Rupar Show. Today I have a really wide-ranging and informative conversation with Simon Rosenberg. Simon is the author of The Hopium Chronicles. Um, he is a long-time uh, he's been in democratic politics for a long time, about 30 years. He formerly headed a think tank in the DC area called NDN, but he left that as he will talk about in our interview earlier this year to launch the Hopium Chronicles, which kind of straddles the line between advocacy and journalism. Uh, Simon basically provides tools for his readers to become information warriors, as he puts it, to push back on right-wing spin and disinformation and to tell the story of what Democrats are doing both in the White House but across the country. So we talk about that. We also get into another topic that Simon has been writing about quite a bit lately, which is basically the Trump coup attempt of late 2020 into 2021 that, you know, of course, culminated in the January 6th attack and why he thinks that is going to be a major political liability, not just for Trump, but for the entire Republican Party over the next 16 months. So before we get into that interview, I just want to remind listeners that um, it helps if you subscribe to the show, if you're listening to this on the audio version of the podcast. If you're on YouTube, please also like and subscribe. And if you want to support this work, including both this podcast, but what I do on social media and my newsletter, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the public notice news letter. All of my work is supported by paid subscribers. And if you just Google Aaron Rupar public notice or go to publicnotice.co, you will find all the information that you need there. So I'll get to my conversation with uh, Simon in a moment. But also let me let me say that next week I will have Jay Black, a uh, comedian who I've known on social media for a long time on the show. Jay is not only very uh, insightful about politics and, uh, you know, kind of an expert in politics in his own right, but he is very, very funny. So I think that will bring a little bit of levity to the show next week. Um, but we had a few laughs this week as well with Simon, even as we talked about some serious stuff. So without further ado, let's get to that interview. All right. Well, welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. I'm thrilled today to have Simon Rosenberg on the show. Simon is the author of the Hopium Chronicles, which is a relatively new Substack that I highly recommend, especially if you are, and in all likelihood you are, if you're listening to this, a progressive. Uh, as Simon puts it, he provides tools for people to be information warriors, uh, to kind of know what they're talking about online, and to push back against right-wing spin and disinformation. So Simon, thanks for taking some time this morning to talk to me. It's great to be here. And I just want to say I'm a big fan. I, I think I've tweeted your stuff out more than anybody else in the country in the last couple of years. And so thank you for providing incredible fodder and important information uh, for all of us who are in the game every day. I'm really grateful. And so well, thank honor, you. Honor to be here. 
I really appreciate that. And as we were talking before we started recording, I uh, mentioned to Simon that I just retweeted him actually before we started, uh, before we hopped on this call pertaining to some of his writing about January 6th, which we will get into a little bit later. But I wanted actually to begin just by asking you about the name uh, Hopium Chronicles, because um, I think there's a little bit of irony. I mean, it's a great name, first of all, but second of all, there's a little bit of irony here because Hopium to me kind of has a connotation of like altered consciousness or like, you know, kind of, um, you know, sort of willful, you know, having like a willful belief about something, uh, hope yeah. in this case. But actually what you do is you provide very sober information. Um, you kind of cut through a lot of the noise. And so I think there's a little bit of irony there with the name, but <laughs> maybe I'm thinking about too hard. Um, explain to me where the no, name came from it, for this. You know, it's it's kind of an insidery thing. And but what it came about because during the 2022 election, when I was became known for saying it was going to be a close competitive election and not a red wave. And, you know, I got in the last three weeks of the election, I got 100 million Twitter views over my commentary. It was kind of crazy. Um, I was accused by many in the media of having uh, smoking hopium, of <laughs> being delusional, uh, in essence, delusional uh, about the Democratic prospects, including Nate Silver and Amy Walters and others use this term hopium. And it was a term I had never heard before, but I understood what it meant. And I've embraced it because for me, first of all, because I was proven right. And, and I think, you know, that the election was a close competitive election, not a red wave election. And it was sort of a play on this idea that the media fell so hard for false narratives in 2022. And it was concerning to me as somebody who's been around for a long time that very smart people were bamboozled in essence by Republicans into believing something that was happening that wasn't. And so part of the irony or the game here is this notion of like Plato's cave, you know, that there's, we have to become more conscious of the manipulation of our discourse on a daily basis. Um, and that that's a major part of my substack. But the second piece that's more important is that for me, what hopium has in the way I define it is that it's hope with a plan. It means that, a group of people can look at a situation, take concrete action, and change the future. We can change outcomes. I think we did that in 2022. Millions of Americans got up and went to work to prevent our democracy from slipping away. And so for me, hopium is hope with a plan. It's not just hope, which is a little bit passive, but it's hope with action. And, and where we've learned by having hopium, we can actually alter the future and make things better for the American people. And that's a major inspiration for what we do here at our at my Substack. Yeah. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I, I want to rewind to the the midterms. Um, I think that, you know, one of the reasons or, you know, among the reasons that people thought that that would be a red wave election. I mean, first of all, you just had the historical precedent of a president in the midterms. Uh, traditionally, that has not gone well for the party of the president. Yeah. But setting that aside, I mean, you also had Biden's polling, which, you know, was kind of hovering, I think, at that time in the high 30s, low 40s, which is historically pretty grim. And then you also had, you know, a lot of polling pertaining to people's attitudes about the economy. We had bad inflation at the time. So, you know, as you were as you were kind of surveying that landscape, um, what were some of the factors that you think the media missed that accounted for the fact that, of course, you know, Democrats held on to the Senate and they lost the House, but by a very narrow margin? Yeah, there were two things. First is there was an enormous discounting of the ugliness of MAGA across the whole media. I mean, to believe a red wave was coming, you had to believe the American people were going to forgive the Republicans for Trump, for the insurrection, for all the things that they had done in previous years, that the same sentiment that had driven those elections in 2018 and 2020. I mean, we had very high turnout elections. Democrats did very well in the previous two elections. 
And it's because the driving force in those elections was fear and opposition to MAGA. And then in 2021 and 2022, the Republicans become even more MAGA, right? It's now everybody. It's not just Trump. And the idea that those same voters, this anti-MAGA majority, would sort of turn away and forget and sort of like drop all this stuff into the memory hole was never going to happen. And I think that there was this sort of normalization of their extremism that's happened across the media that played out, you know, was required for you to believe that a red wave could come, that they would be rewarded for an insurrection and all of their extremism. I just didn't believe that was the case. And the first memo I wrote about this was in October of 21, saying I think that their embrace of MAGA, usually when a political party loses an election, as they did in 2020, they run away from that failed politics. Republicans ran towards it. And what that meant to me was that it was a strategy mistake and that it was going to lower their ceiling in terms of what was possible for them. And it was going to make it possible for us to turn this into a competitive election, which is what happened. But the second thing is from a data standpoint, Tom Bonnier and I sort of widened the aperture of the data that we were looking at beyond national polling. <clears throat> and we added things like what was happening in the House special elections. There were five House specials after Dobbs where Democrats um, outperformed their 2020 numbers by seven points. It was a red wave year. We should be below 2020. We were above 2020 in five elections across the country. Kansas happened. We saw voter registration numbers surge in our direction all across the country after Dobbs. We saw outrageous levels of candidate fundraising. We were outraising our Republican opponents four to five to one. And so all of these indications of intensity were all pointing in the same direction towards the Democrats, not towards the Republicans. And then the early vote came and the early vote had the same exact manifestation. We saw high Democratic intensity. We outperformed 2018, 2020 in an election that was supposed to be bad for us, where we weren't supposed to have energy and passion and intensity, right? And we saw it show up in the early vote. And so when I, you know, I stuck to my guns in those final few weeks and said, look, when you look at all the data, not just the polling data at a national level, what you really see is a close competitive election. And that's what we had. And, and you know, I never said the Democrats are going to win or that we're going to have a big election. I didn't know. I mean, who knew, right? Yeah. But the indications were, if you widen the aperture, that this was going to be a close competitive election. So I do think that this was probably the biggest failure of the political commentariat in my lifetime since mm. I've been here in terms of just the, the myths, because the red wave wasn't just a myth. It was the opposite of what happened right? and where it was actually about Democratic intensity, not Republican intensity in the battlegrounds. Right. Mm. And so, you know, this was a great this was a big election for us. And this trend of heightened Democratic intensity where the elections really matter bad Republican performance has continued in 2023. You know, we had this big win in Wisconsin. We had big wins in, in Jacksonville and Colorado Springs, two heavily Republican cities where we took away Republican cities. We took away a Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin. We won this really important special in Pennsylvania. We're seeing very strong early vote numbers in Ohio, in the ballot initiative in Ohio. You're continuing to see this heightened Democratic intensity because I think there's just basically an anti-MAGA majority and millions of Americans who are not going to let their country slip away and they're fighting really hard. And that that and that um, energy, that passion, that love of country, that patriotism that we're seeing manifest all across the country has become something, it's our superpower now as Democrats, right? It's mm -hmm. our, we have this vast pool of people across the country who are getting up every day and doing a little bit of work to help their democracy. It's really inspiring to see. Yeah. 
Yeah. And let, let's fast forward a little bit to the present here, because even yeah. when you look, you know, from November to July, where we are right now, um, I think Biden's, you know, his argument has only been strengthened by yeah. kind of the historic jobs record. Um, you know, he somehow managed to navigate bringing inflation down without tanking the the recovery in terms of job creation. That's still been really mm -hmm. strong. We've had really encouraging data, which you've written about in your newsletter about border crossings and how, you know, those are down this summer. So it seems like the situation there has gotten better in recent months. Um, you know, if we want to go even further back, we could talk about COVID and how, you know, I think people kind of forget January 2021. We had 80,000 Americans a month dying at that time. And, you know, it kind of gets taken for granted by a lot of commentators um, that we were going to come out of that as smoothly as we did. But it took a very orderly vaccine rollout with the wide av availability of them to get us to where we are now, where we, we've kind of forgotten about COVID mostly, or at least some yeah. of us have. But, um, you know, so I want to kind of press a little bit on this because, um, you know, with all of that being said, Biden's polling still remains, um, you know, not great. It's the low 40s. Yeah. But, you know, when they pull head to head matchups with Trump, it seems like it's going to be pretty much where we were at last cycle, kind of a coin flip. Now, yeah. granted, we're we're a ways out. Um, so polling at this point isn't um, super meaningful. But you know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are as yeah. to why, you know, you talked about this, this anti mega majority. And then, you know, as I just detailed, there are a lot of things even since November that kind of strengthened Biden's hand. And yet we're still looking, you know, at a very close election next year in all likelihood. Now, granted, as we'll get into a bit later, that could change with some of the charges that Trump is yeah. facing and, and things get worse for Trump very easily. But why do you think some of these things yeah. haven't shown up in Biden's polling yet? I don't know that people are fundamentally engaged in the in the election 16 months from now. And I think mm -hmm. that there is. Um, so first of all, Biden's approval rating today is about where it was in the election day in 2022, when we had a really good election day. I mean, we remember, yeah. we we got to 59% in Colorado, 57% in Pennsylvania, 55% in Michigan, 54% in, in New Hampshire. We didn't just have a good election in the battleground states that are going to determine the presidency. We had an extraordinary election in the battleground states. And the battleground now has gotten harder for Republicans in 2024 because we've now had three elections in a row where the anti-MAGA majority, at least in the battlegrounds, has given Democrats very big victories, right, and meaningful victories. And so I think the battleground, whoever the Republican nominee is, has gotten harder. And because the people there, we've litigated MAGA there. They know it. There's been discussion about it. They've seen the candidates and they're not there. And, and so one is that, you know, I think that my view about national polling is one of the things we learned last year is national polling is not very descriptive of what was what happened in the election, that there was other things that we had to look at. And many of those instances of intensity that I described in 2022 are showing up in 2023. We've outperformed in these special elections as we did in 2022. We are raising much more money than they are, both at the candidate level and the party committee level right now. You know, you're seeing, um, you know, um, Biden has Biden just had a really huge fundraising haul, right? Just in the last few days, we learned. So I think if you, my view is about this, is A, the battleground is now, we didn't have, what was unusual about 2022 is it was not a nationalized election. There wasn't one election. There were two elections. There was a bluer election inside the battleground and a redder election outside the battleground. Because where we have these big campaigns and all this money that we're raising, we can control the information environment and we can push turnout through the roof. So it's possible that there's been a, a decoupling, not of Biden's approval rating, but of the battleground from the national trend lines. And so it used to be that the thought would be in the battlegrounds, Democrats are two to three points worse 
than the national numbers. It may be that we're now two to three, four points better than the national numbers. So I, I think things are fine. Like I'm not worried. I'd much rather be yes than them. As a strategist, our path for re-election is very clear to me. Their path for success in 2024 is not clear to me at all because I think they're going to have two enormous anchors dragging their party's brand down in the next 16 months, regardless of who the nominee is. One is Trump's ongoing depravities and legal problems that are going to be a problem for the Republicans across the board, all Republicans in every race across the country. It's going to be a suppression of their brand because it's going to be in the backdrop. And all these indictments that are going to be happening in the states will also be you know, in, in the backdrop. The second is going to be DeSantis and, and what, he, what he's done in Florida. And I think that if we're going to be able to paint the mess and the craziness of Florida and say, you know, if you elect a Republican, this is what you get, right? You get soaring inflation and collapsing um, home home insurance markets and barbaric immigration policies that are causing businesses to close and people to flee. You're seeing Disney pull jobs out of the state because of their anti-woke stuff, book banning. You want an America that looks like that? Let me point, you want America to look like Florida? I think we can use DeSantis's awful governorship as a bludgeon against them, regardless of whether he's the nominee or not. So I think we have enormous tools to speak to this anti-MAGA majority, to remind them that these guys are still those guys. They're still those Republicans they've been voting against and don't like. And I think Joe Biden's story, as you pointed out, for re-election has gotten much stronger, right, in recent months. And so I'd much rather be us than them, but we've got a long way to go and things are going to change. And right. uh, But today, you know, I'd, I'd much rather be us than them. Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. If you're ready to get started, go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting. Let's talk a little bit about the, the Trump stuff that you touched upon uh, just a couple minutes ago with um, you know the, the story that everybody is talking about this week, and I'm sure next week as well, are these January 6th related charges, which have not been filed yet. No one has read the indictment, but, you know, smart lawyers that I've been in touch with, you know, expect it to be devastating uh, when the indictment does come, just as was the as was the case also with the classified document situation. Yeah. Um, so I just want to read a tweet that you posted yesterday because I thought that you put this uh, very well. You wrote, quote, periodic reminder that the conspiracy to illegally install Trump as president in 2020, 2021 was Republican Party wide conspiracy involving dozens, perhaps hundreds of GOP leaders and activists across the country, including GOP chair McDaniel and White House chief of staff Meadows, end quote. Um, kind of spinning that forward, why is that significant? And um, how do you see this kind of affecting the politics? I mean, obviously, you know, there's there's I know that you're I don't believe you're a lawyer, right? Um, no. So I won't ask I won't ask you to no. to weigh in and kind of how um, the legal process could affect things, because obviously Trump is going to have to deal with all of these hearings. I mean, even yesterday he had a hearing for the classified documents case while everybody is talking about a separate indictment over January 6th, then he might be indicted soon in Fulton County. And so, you know, it's going to create a lot of problems logistically just in terms of campaigning. But 
from a political standpoint in terms yeah. of how this will affect our conversations about the presidential election, how do you see this playing out over the next 16 months or so? I think it's a disaster for the Republicans. And it's a much, I think it's a much bigger disaster than people really understand right now. Because the way to think about this is that the we often describe it as January 6th, but the effort to install him illegally as president when he didn't win the election was a vast conspiracy that involved hundreds and hundreds of Republican officials and elected officials and activists across the country, um, including Ronna Romney McDaniel, who has openly said that she participated in the fake elector scheme, um, as Mark, we know that Mark Meadows is potentially going to be indicted. And so the way to think about this is that the attack on the Congress was a small piece of a much bigger conspiracy that involved hundreds and hundreds of leading Republican officials in, by the way, in the battleground states, right, in these states that are going to determine the presidency, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, you know, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Mexico even, right? And um, and so what it means is that so far in this vast conspiracy, a thousand people have been charged. The DOJ has has a 100% track record of conviction, right, or, or plea. And now there's going to be another two to 300 people added on top of that over the next few years. And all those people are going to be Republican officials, right? It's the same case. It's not a different case. It's the insurrectionists and Ronna Romney McDaniel and the Michigan indictments that came down yesterday. It's all the same thing. It's this attempt to install Trump illicitly as president of the United States. And the charging documents that what we've read in the paper is going to assert a conspiracy, right, of Trump. And if he's the head of a conspiracy, then everyone who participated in the conspiracy are have legal exposure. And so what happened yesterday in Michigan uh, with the attorney general um, uh, charged at, at, with state law, and some of this is going to be state charging, some of this could be federal. We don't really know how it's going to play out. We'll see, right? But I think the likelihood is that over the next two, three, four, five years, you could see the way that the trials have been going for the insurrectionists and the people who attacked the Congress have been playing out over time plea deals are done, right? The next two to 300 of those plea deals are going to involve very prominent Republicans all across the country, trials, plea arrangements, all these things. And this is going to be a ongoing backdrop to our national discourse at a national level, right? Giuliani, you know, Meadows, Ronald Romney, McDaniel. But it's also going to be happening in the battleground states, too, in a time when those voters are going to have to make a decision about who they're going to vote for president in 2024. So this is a very, very big problem for a party whose brand is already heavily degraded. I mean, I posted yesterday that if you look at the latest civics polling, they do a daily, you know, they poll every day. The Republicans right now are favorable. The Republican Party, favorable, unfavorable, is 29.62 minus 33. It's it's hard to imagine that it could get worse, but it, if they get down into the low to mid twenties, you know, we're looking at what could be next year, right? Um, a blowout election for the Democrats, mm-hmm. and and they will deserve it. Republicans will deserve to get blown out. We need this next election to be seen as a repudiation of MAGA. It's critical that whatever happens, whatever the numbers are, fifty-one, forty-seven, fifty-five, forty-five, whatever the electoral college. If we can come out of this election with a sense that finally the American people have risen up and said no more, it will start to loosen loosen MAGA's grip on the Republican Party, which is going to be good for the Republican Party. It's going to be good for the Democrats. It's going to be good for the country. And I think that 
this the Republicans now have really got this is a much bigger political problem for the Republican Party than is really understood at this point. But we'll see how it, this is my assessment. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just one more question on yeah. uh, on the Republican Party here, because, um, you know, after we wrap up this recording, I am watching an oversight committee hearing later today. Uh, you know, James Comer is the chair of that committee. They're bringing in uh, a guy who goes by Whistleblower X. Um, and <laughs> Fox News has been hyping this. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the point simply being that, you know, on the Republican side, when you when you kind of pay, pay attention, as I do to what's going on there, I mean, it's I'm, almost I'm sorry like this, about that, by the way. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's fascinating on one level because it's yeah. almost like this alternative reality of whistleblowers yeah. and, you know, they're obsessed with Hunter Biden and rumors and, you know, anti LGBT stuff. And um, it's just kind of this this cesspool. And so I know part of what you do with the Hopium Chronicles is kind of coaching readers in terms of how to engage, uh, you know, not only with fellow Democrats, but in some cases, I would presume with Republicans as well. And so, you know, what's what's kind of your, you know, you're a very experienced person. You've been working in Democratic politics for 30 years at this point. Um, yeah. Obviously, the Republican Party now is a whole lot different than it was, you know, in the George H.W. Yeah. Bush era uh, when you got going or, you know, yeah. I guess you started in the late 80s. So more yeah. kind of even Reagan era. But, yeah. um, you know, should should Democrats just kind of ignore this stuff or, you know, what, what's your advice for you no, know, Democrats who might have Republican family members and, and want to talk politics with them? It's a great question. And I, and I think I'm going to give you several answers, right? One is that part of my coaching is that we can't do what you do, which is live in this ugliness every day, right? It becomes debilitating. And, and just as, as citizens, I think it's far healthier and constructive to take all this worry, this ugliness, this fear, uncertainty, doubt, the craziness that we're witnessing, and don't dwell on it. Don't spend time on it spend time in taking act, constructive action, right? Use this concern you have about your democracy. Don't live in it. Channel that into constructive action, phone calls, texting, postcard writing, being, you know, sending positive messages about Biden through your networks, right? Um, but we can't look away. I mean, the critical thing about what you do, and, you know, even that Robert Kennedy video that I think was so consequential that came out of that post meeting, we can't look away at what they're doing. We can't pretend or normalize that this is, you know, in them in any way, we have to be clear eyed about it. And what I tell people is spend two thirds of your time on social media and your communications talking about the positive things we do. And one third about them and their ugliness, because otherwise what you're doing is the ugliness becomes, I think it debilitating for people. I think it's so scary and crazy that you just don't want to spend time there. The reason I use, so in my own communication, two thirds, 70%, 75% of my stuff is promoting positive things and then about Biden, the Democrats, and then a quarter of it is promoting your stuff probably, you know, and, and uh, you know, the things that you do, I follow your work very closely and, and, and promote it heavily because I think we have to be reminded, but not obsessive about what they've become. Because that fear of them is the most powerful force in American politics today. It's the thing that's far more powerful than any disappointment in Joe Biden, which is why we did so well in the election last year, and why we're going to do well again. Because if you're worried about MAGA, you have a lot more to be worried about now than you did even two years ago, mm -hmm. um, because MAGA now is clearly not just a Trump phenomenon. It's something that's spread to the entire, you know, it, it, the way I describe it is that extremism and extremists have taken over the Republican Party. That's yeah. not a permanent condition. And I think the key here is to, you know, you have to love the sinner and hate the sin, right? You have to be able to say that, you know, Republicans are good people. It's just their party's been hijacked 
by extremists. Our goal should be to work with Republicans in a pro-democracy movement to free their party of this extremism. It's the right thing for all of us, for the country, for Republicans. We want a center-right political party. We don't want to have an election every two years where we're worried that our democracy could slip away if we stumble, right? And we want to get back to a normal politics. And so I, I think the key thing here, what's been interesting to me is that a lot of this new grassroots that you're seeing pop up around the country uses language around democracy and pro-democracy as opposed to Democrat-Republican, right? Mm-hmm. And and it, it's a change. It's a huge change in the way that we think about it. I think about what our mission is in politics. And I'm, I think it's been very, it's helped inspire people to take unprecedented levels of action to preserve their democracy here in the United States and to uh, to fight against MAGA. And, and so it that's, I mean, so that's the answer. The answer is, look, we need to watch the Robert Kennedy video. We need to watch the stuff that you produce. Um, but we can't watch too much because <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, because it gets scary and debilitating. And but it it is, you know, I, I mean, I wrote the piece I've got coming out later this morning. I described these investigations more as something like Monty Python and the Marx Brothers than, you know, serious congressional investigations. At the end of the day, what you've been documenting is a political party humiliating itself to the entire world again and again and again. And it's just an extraordinarily disappointing manifestation uh, and, and abu- of their politics and abuse of power by this, you know, this group of extremists, including Jim Jordan, that have, you know, really done damage to our body politic. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, RFK Jr. a couple times. <laughs> um, I, I know you've, you've, you know, at least tweeted, I don't think you've covered this yet in your newsletter, but um, kind of the crop of third party candidates that we have um, who have been gaining, you know, not RFK Jr. obviously has been in the news for reasons that are not flattering for him. Although, um, you know, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you'd kind of believe that um, he has a good chance of beating Biden in the primary because right. he gets so much, he gets so much hype from Elon Musk and Jack and, you know, these crypto uh, kind of the, the Elon universe, you know, they, yeah. they went from uh, hyping DeSantis, you know, helping him launch his campaign pretty seamlessly as soon as DeSantis started cratering to hyping RFK Jr. as kind of a, a chaos candidate. But then even beyond that, we had uh, Cornell West this week has been kind of doing the the media rounds, including, yeah. you know, a hit on Hannity, which, um, you know, for what it was, was actually quite effective in that, you know, he tried to highlight, uh, you know, some of Biden's connections with Southern Democrats and kind of paint Biden as being, you know, racist in some way, but then also pivoted to Trump and Trump's father's connections with the KKK. And um, I posted a clip of that that really kind of blew up. And, you know, I saw a lot of people somewhat kind of disturbingly in my replies saying, you know, this is a voice we need right now in our politics. And, um, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know if endorsing him is the right word, but, you know, expressing support for Cornell West. Um, You know, do you view this as just being kind of, you know, every cycle there are third party candidates? Um, You know, it's a story basically as old of time as old as time in American politics. Um, you know, what's your, you know, as you're coaching uh, your readers, yeah. uh, what's the right way to think about these candidates? Is there anything to be especially worried about here? Yeah, I did drop sort of an initial thought piece on this the other day. And here, here's my quick my quick points. One is none of these candidates can win and, and they're all spoilers. So they don't actually deserve a lot of attention. Second is they're all going to get an enormous amount of support on social media, you know, inauthentic um, support from various actors who want chaos in our politics. And no one should be surprised by that. And and we should anticipate that there's going to be an enormous outpouring of support for them, particularly on Twitter. And no one should 
consider that to be actual real people or authentic speech in any way. There's going to be a few people like David Sachs and Elon who are real people, but the vast majority of the tweets you're going to see and the social media posts are going to be from inauthentic sources bolstering these guys in the same way that the Russians helped the Republicans in 2016. Mm-hmm. The Russians are continuing to invest enormous amounts of money in manipulating our domestic discourse, as one would imagine would be other hostile powers around the country. Third is that, um, you know, the pro-Russian sentiment that you're hearing uh, a lot from Cornell West, Jill, yeah. you know, the Cornell West slash Jill Stein candidacy, because I think they're the same, right? I mean, Jill Stein's running his campaign. We should call it the West Stein campaign just to remind Democrats about what's going on here, right? We've seen this movie before, is yeah. that um, the pro-Russian sentiment is shocking. It's it's shocking. And, and it is completely out of character where the American people are. It's something we have to have a big conversation about as a country at some point, about how so many prominent people can be mimicking, you know, taking things that feel like they've been written in, from Moscow that morning, right, and given to them. Um, and, and, and I think that finally... None of this is, you know, we have to make sure that we are spending our time diminishing these people and not building them up, right? Mm -hmm. The more that we platform them, the more that we give them opportunity, the more that we, it's like what you were saying earlier. I mean, we have to look at them and pay attention to them, but they should be, they're a minor part of the discourse in this country right now, particularly because I think people know how the stakes of this election, I don't think they're going to throw their vote away. I think they went through this already in 2016 and there was catastrophe that came on the other end. And it doesn't mean they're not going to try to get one or two points, but here and there. But I, I think we have to be, I also think it's going to be much more difficult for them to break through for two other reasons. One is there are so many Republican candidates running, but the, the space to cover these guys is much smaller. And also there is almost certainly not going to be a presidential debate set of debates next year. The Republicans have made it clear they don't really want them. And so it means that any hope that Joe Manchin or Cornell West had of getting up on stage with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, is it's very unlikely that that's going to happen under any circumstances. And I think for me, the no labels argument is that Joe, Man- you know, they're not, they have no chance of winning. I mean, the, the no labels thing is based on two fundamental lies. One is they, the, 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 there is no center lane third party in American politics, it doesn't exist. Manchin, if you name him, I'm sure is polling at six, seven, eight percent, and looks much more like Jill Stein than he does some kind of world beater. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is the basic premise of No Labels starts off with this paragraph in their new document that the two parties are the same; they're both being run by extremists. And I don't know; that's just fucking batshit crazy, frankly. Mm-hmm. And and so and and it's just not true. And so the entire premise of the no labels thing is built on two enormous lies that I think they can't, when they go on TV, they can't even get through an interview without getting destroyed by interviewers because it's so obviously uh, a fake campaign, right? And what they're saying is untrue. So I don't think we should, we have to like all the other work that you do, we have to keep an eye on this stuff. We have to pay attention to it, but we had our engagement with the public and with our communities and our networks has to be much more, about building Joe Biden up. We know from polling that people don't really know about what Joe Biden's done. And when they're informed about it, his numbers go way up. We know this from private polling, from public polling. I mean, there's been polling on this for a year and a half. So what a campaign does is a campaign gives people information they didn't have before. 
And we're going to be able to give people information they didn't have that is likely going to drive his numbers up and push their numbers down, which is one of the reasons that I'm so uh, optimistic about next year. And I think for your listeners and your viewers, you know, if you're thinking about what can I do to help, right? How do I make sure we have a good election? The single most important thing we can do collectively is to amplify the good works of Joe Biden, mm -hmm. because we know that people don't know about it. And when they hear about it, they like it, by the way. This is welcome information, right? They're like, wow, it's great he's investing in yeah. climate change and all this other stuff. Let's have more of that, right? So we know from polling and research that people want to hear this. They're receptive when they get it. And when they hear it, his numbers go way up. So let's spend yeah. our bulk of our time amplifying his good works, his good presidency. I think it can make a big difference between now and the summer of next year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great place to end it. Uh Really wide-ranging conversation, and I appreciate your time. Uh, on the way out here, I should give you an opportunity to kind of plug Hopium Chronicles. Sure. I know that you you have kind of a unique model on your Substack, where for paid subscribers, you do kind of more, you know, not in person but virtual events with them, more conversational um, types of things. So, you know, give us a sense of what's coming up with Hopium Chronicles, and if you have any big stuff happening as we close in on November 2024. Yeah, listen, this has been a startup. I, I have to admit, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I shut an organization down that I've been running for 27 years because. Um, MDN because it was a C3, C4, and there's limits in political speech in those kinds of organizations. And I felt this was a time to be a little bit where we had to be more brass knuckled and, and sort of get out there and fight a little bit harder. And I was felt very restrained in my old organization. And so I've created a new media organization to help us collectively, like what you're doing, get louder and be control more of the daily discourse. And it's free. I mean, the most important thing is my Substack's free. I mean, you get 90% of the material on my Substack as you can get as a free subscriber. The paid subscribers are really supporters who are funding the work and who then get, a, you know, intimate. I did one last night. I had several hundred people on a private conversation. And But for most people who are watching today or listening today, Come join us at Hopium Chronicles. It's free. I'm going to try to keep it free for as long as I can, because I think what I'm trying to do is to help people who want to save their democracy become better at it and use the years of experience I've had as a TV producer and writer and a primetime television shows and as a political strategist and worked on presidential campaigns and helped advise the DCCC in 2018. I'm now trying to create, uh, take all that that I've learned and help the many, many millions of people who are getting up every day, taking actions on behalf of their democracy, I, I want to make them more effective. Because I think, the, the to me, this movement that has grown in recent years, it's been enabled by Zoom, where people now have a much lower barrier to entry into politics than they had before. It's been enabled by this re remote texting and phoning technology, meaning that you can call into battleground states and swing voters you know, from anywhere in the country, right? There's a new thing. There's been some technological advances, which has enabled this sort of explosion of grassroots activism. To me, this is one of the most affirming and inspiring things that I've ever been part of, because it's just regular old Americans saying, you know, proud patriots all across the country who love their country, saying, I'm not going to let my democracy slip away. And I'm going to spend the next two years giving a half an hour, an hour, a day or a week to help, you know, win in Ohio and win in Mich Michigan or Wisconsin. And these people are the people that are saving our democracy. The these folks all across the country, many of whom are a little bit older, right, who have a little bit of time on their hands. Uh, these groups that I speak to, I speak to two to three of these groups a week. They are often um, 
people who have been very accomplished in their own lives and done real things that are now building really effective grassroots organizations that are contributing and making our democracy better. So I, I think if I can close by this, and when you asked me earlier, like what did I see in 2022 that led me to believe it was going to be a close competitive election? One of the most powerful things I saw was all these people, that, these groups that I spoke to during the election, where I saw all this passion and this intensity and this grit and this fight of people who were not going to let their democracy slip away. And I realized that I was part of a huge national movement of people who were fighting like you do every day, Aaron, and weren't going to let those guys win. And I saw that and I and it inspired me and made me believe that maybe all this data I was seeing about intensity, democratic intensity was real because I was seeing it in the people that I was talking to. And I'm continuing to see it every day. These groups are continuing to meet on a weekly basis. Some are meeting every day um, and they're changing. They're, they're, they are preserving our democracy and they're pushing democratic performance to the upper end of what's possible. It's why to close, I've written something on my Substack called Get to 55. And it's why I want us to be thinking in this next election, not about getting to 51 and scree you know, another screecher, right? another stumbling over the finish line. I want to get to 55. I want to win by 10 points. I want to blow it out. I want to make it a, an election that's a clear repudiation of MAGA. And in this document, I go through data showing how we can get to 55. And the most important way is that we need to launch a national youth voter registration drive to push young citizen, uh, young people's participation in this election through the roof. If we do that, I think we can have the kind of election in 2024 that can change history and can start to really weaken the threat of MAGA in a way that is something that will allow us to all go back to our normal lives again yeah. uh, after the election. So thank you for the opportunity to be with yeah. you and your community today. And listen, thank you for your work. I mean, honestly, I, I'm not joking here is that when I was preparing for this interview today, I thought it's possible that I've retweeted you out more <laughs> than any other single person in the country in the last two years because your stuff is so good and you're making such thank a you. huge contribution to the discourse. And just thank you as a fanboy here from, uh, from oh, thank you. Northwest DC. No, that's really kind of you. And yeah, let, let's hope that this next election cycle is a repudiation of mega. Otherwise we might have Trump uh, as the 2028 <laughs> Republican nominee. So uh, God forbid, it'll keep me God busy, forbid. but I'd rather... prison again. He'll yeah. be running from prison again. Um, I'd rather not be busy. I'd rather take it a little easier <laughs> next time around. So Simon, thanks a lot for your time. We'll check thanks, in again Aaron. down the line. See you, man. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.